the potential is huge, but I think we're only barely in the first iteration of solutions. We'll need to go much, much deeper, and it gets harder as you try to drive deeper, deeper value. Behind the scenes, it was a small group of people that were doing everything. Slow is smooth and smooth is fast. I want to know how this insane growth actually happened. What are you doing when no one's around, no one's looking? Are you just showing up and doing the minimum? Or are you approaching it like a pro? To be a student of the game. First, a quick word about our sponsor partner. Common Room enables you to turn any buyer activity into pipeline and ingest all of your product usage data, intent data, social activity, community conversations, and CRM insights to automatically surface high intent leads and timely, relevant context so your sales reps can convert more customers and hit revenue targets faster. You can try it for free today or book a demo to go deeper at www.commonroom.io. Now, on to today's episode. Hello and welcome back to the Go-To-Market podcast. It's your host, Scott Barker. Thank you, as always, for choosing to hang out with us. I know there's a million and one podcasts, and we appreciate you lending us your eardrums for the next 45 minutes. We always try and talk to real revenue leaders who are still you know, in seat, doing the thing, and tease out tactics, strategies, and, and stories that have worked for them, that they've been through. And this is going to be a really fun episode. Been looking forward to it for a while. I am joined by Iran Alani. Iran, welcome. Welcome, Scott. Nice to be here. <laughs> Good to have you. Good to have you. And so for the listeners, Iran is the EVP of product strategy and ecosystem at Gong. Previously, it was actually the CCO, uh, CCO and COO at Gong, which is a, a pretty heavy duty role. I can imagine you didn't sleep too much during that, that time period. Never. Never, never. Not once. But a, a funny little, you know, anecdote for the, the listeners is not only is Ron an incredible revenue leader, an LP and GTM fund, but his son, uh, Amit, interned for GTM Fund while he was studying at UBC, which is you know our school in, in Vancouver. And he did such a fantastic job during his internship that we actually hired him as an analyst. So uh, I hang out with your son much more than I do with you, which is pretty funny. Yeah, you probably hang out with him more than I do at this point. But yes, <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Almost every day, I can I can see him from my my office right now. You know, I, th- that might be a fun place to to start the podcast. Is if you're talking to Amit right now, and many listeners might be in Amit's position where they're just starting out their career. What's one piece of advice you would give your son as he's you know in his first year of figuring out tech, VC, this whole new landscape? I think the advice that worked for me, and it's not for everyone, right, is actually not spending too much time planning things in minute details. It's very difficult to know where you're just getting started. Or frankly, for me, even after many years of being in the business, where would life take you? Where would your career take you? What would be your passion in a few years from now? What would the industry look like? So for me, and my advice to a lot of people is just make the most of where you are now. Try to learn as much as possible. 
but keep your horizons open. Opportunities would come. You may find yourself interested in something that you've never thought that you'd be interested in and just, you know, double down on where you see an opportunity and where you see, you know, that you can learn and you can really go deeper on. If you had asked me 15 years ago, if I would run like a big revenue team that was as far as where, you know, I thought I'll, I'll be, and it was an amazing ride and I enjoyed it and I learned a lot. So you never know where, where you're going to end up. Yeah, I think that's fantastic advice. I feel like if you're too rigid in your five-year plan or, or 10-year plan, you're so myopically focused on like that end goal that you can miss a lot of opportunities that are just naturally coming up in your, your periphery. So I think that's great. And yeah, don't try and over-engineer it. Bias toward action. Keep moving. Keep learning. I think that's, that's great for anyone exactly. starting their career. And good advice for actually anyone, even, even, even if you're later in your, your career. Well, Iran, one of the things I think you have a, a super unique purview on, particularly in this, this new role, you know, designing a lot of product strategy at Gong and looking across the entire ecosystem is, of course, artificial intelligence has been top of mind for you probably for many years, or I know so for many years. But in the last, we'll say, year or two, things have accelerated quite dramatically, pretty rapidly. And we're seeing incumbents in the, we'll call them incumbents. I remember when they were all startups, but we'll call them incumbents like Gong and, and other players are sort of in this arms race to infuse more AI into their current offerings. And then on the flip side, we're seeing a bunch of different startups popping up, focused primarily on point solutions that they think they can deliver better. And they're eating up a little bit of market share. How do you think? This plays out. We'll start with in the revenue tech landscape, and then maybe we'll try and wrestle with more broadly in the the B two B landscape. Yeah, I think like many new technologies, we're still in the phase where there's a lot of noise and a lot of companies and startups trying to figure out what this new technology could bring uh, to the market. This is by far, I think the the data suggests like the fastest adopted technology ever. Hundreds of millions of people are, are using some form of AI, whether it's ChatGPT or, or other ways. So the potential is, is huge. I think some of the fundamentals, though, of what makes a great business solution have not changed, meaning what is the actual value? What is the deeper value that you're bringing to your customers? And I think there's sometimes confusion where it's like a technology in search of a problem versus actually you know, solving a real problem for your customers. And I think most solutions today are at the stage where they're optimizing basically the way to summarize or generate um, simple content from a lot of data. So they're very appealing to the end user. If I can help you write an email, I'm going to save time for you. It may not be the perfect email. I don't think we know, a lot of solutions are focusing on that. Like, I'll give you a good enough draft for you to think about so it would save you time. I think where we haven't seen yet a lot of progress is the deeper value. And this is where we focus a lot of our effort, not just summarizing data 
from a lot of different sources, but bringing it to the right people at the right time with actionable insights. So if you're a revenue leader, maybe I can summarize my previous call with a prospect, but summarizing what's happening across the entire interaction with an account is much harder. If I can tell you what I suggest that you do in order to win the account, that's much more valuable, but it's also much, much harder to do. Most solutions I see in the marketplace today focus on the first piece. Let me save you a little bit of time by summarizing something or suggesting a nugget you can use. The deeper value is much, much harder. And I think the lesson in B2B a lot of times that solutions in order to scale and to drive real value, they need to be part of a workflow. They need to be part of a solution that drives value consistently. Mm -hmm. And I think we have ways to go there. This is where we focus a lot of our effort, right? What is the strategic value? What is the workflow we can optimize? How we can make people more, not just more productive by saving time, but winning more, uh, learning better, et cetera. So I think the potential is huge. But I think we're only barely in the first iteration of solutions. Uh, we'll need to go much, much deeper. And it gets harder as you try to drive deeper, deeper value. Embedding in the workflow is, is huge. And the other thing I, I think a lot about too, which I think, you know, Gong's going to benefit greatly from and some of the, the bigger players that have a larger customer base that are taking more actions in their platform is, is this proprietary data set that can, that can train the, artificial intelligence and the the machine learning behind the scenes. A lot of these new entrants I'm seeing, even if they're thinking more broadly in the way that you described, of like, we're going to derive these deep insights from understanding across the whole org, and we're going to be able to map your accounts and take the next best action. But we're reliant upon all of these other platforms to give us their data. And I don't think it's crazy to see a world where people get more rigid with their access to data and allowing it to flow in and out of their their systems and if that happens a lot of these startups like you're done you know you're not even just plateauing like you're going to zero basically um how do you think about you know when you look at the landscape like if you're not if there's actions not being taken in the platform that you created there's, there's no data or systems of record for you to train things on. How do you think about that in terms of kind of the broader, broader landscape and the impact that might have? That's an amazing point, right? You can use open AI and public data up to a certain point, right? Again, mm -hmm. if I need you to help me write an email, but I want this to feel more formal or less formal, you can probably rely on public models. There's enough examples out there to help you. But if you're trying to write the best email that fits Scott because you know exactly what previously was discussed and you know a lot about Scott's business and you know about what worked and didn't work for your own sales team in previous conversations, you have to have very high quality data and a lot of it. Mm -hmm. So if you don't own the data, it's actually very hard to have access to it because as you mentioned, you know, that data is becoming siloed. A lot of systems actually don't really have the most valuable data that you could use for those type of things because it's not just about the inputs and the outcomes. It's about all of the interactions and all of the context around it. That's how we think about people, right? I don't just look at the spreadsheet when I'm trying to think 
how do I send my next email to Scott? If I've had previous conversations with you, I know exactly what's important to you. I have the context, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I agree, if, if, if you're only using public data and you're not in a position that you can over time build a huge data set that you have some advantage in analyzing or having access to, I don't think you can build a very deep solution. Mm-hmm. So I think incumbents have you know, an advantage in this day and age if you actually have access to all of this data. It's mm-hmm. very hard to gather that data. There's a perpetual motion here. If you're too small, it's hard for you to drive value to your customers if you don't have the data. So there is, you know, scale has a lot of benefits in, in this world. Definitely. Who do you think the, the biggest winners are, are going to be? So I, I really like, for example, like the cross-section of you know, vertical B2B SaaS solutions mixed with artificial intelligence. I think there's going to be some big winners in, in some of these, I, I guess, like underserved verticals like agriculture tech and things that were just, they didn't have a lot of great solutions and they were, you know, we'll call it software 2.0 wasn't really adopted that well. And now artificial intelligence just makes everything kind of easier to use. You can talk with it like you would talk with a, a human. And so I, I think adoption is going to go up. Um, any other winners you, you see in the, in the short term? Well, I think if you combine the trend around AI and what we're seeing in the market today, where there's basically a very strong trend to consolidation, I think we're seeing the price that customers have been paying over the past, I don't know, five to 10 years by choosing a lot of point solutions, but a lot of them were not adopted well, they're not interconnected well. So the productivity gains that you should have seen from point solutions has actually caused a lot of teams to have lower productivity. Right. So I think if you're, if you're trying to capture a big market, I think you have to think about capturing a very wide range of use cases for your customers. So A, you would have an end-to-end data flow, so you know what happens throughout a lot of what's happening in their business. And you can provide much better solutions because you can get better adoption, people work within a single solution, et cetera, and you become an expert and you know, kind of a core piece in their, in their tech stack. I think that's one thing. The second thing, I completely agree with you. I think, again, during the heydays where, you know, money was cheap and everyone was adopting a lot of different tools, a lot of companies focused on their own sector, meaning tech companies selling to other tech companies. That market is great, but it's finite. And there's a huge opportunity outside of tech, whether it's like brick and mortar businesses, manufacturing, you mentioned agriculture, food tech, et cetera, where a lot of the previous generations of technology were not adopted because they couldn't afford to adopt five different solutions and have someone come in and build the workflows and customize it to their needs. They, they just couldn't afford it. They don't have the, the time, the experience, or the money to do it. So I think vertical solutions are, are going to definitely be on the rise. And I think AI with some of the more conversational interfaces you can start building with them should help as these interfaces become better for non-tech employees to adopt technologies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, agreed. 
Agreed. Yeah, it's interesting. It's almost like two seemingly conflicting ideas where like one of the biggest beneficiaries is going to be horizontal platforms that, you know, have a broad range of of features and you're living all in one platform, efficiency goes up. And that's also you're collecting even more more data because more actions are happening. And so in that world is it's almost a scary world because it feels like a a winner takes all. Like when, once you escape velocity in that world, your AI is going to outcompete everyone else's, you know, LLM pretty, pretty fast. And then maybe that's paired with some of these hyper verticalized solutions and, and that becomes like the new the new tech stack of the future is this all in one platform and then you you pick your verticalized solution. But well we could play sort of Nostradamus all day and try and <laughs> predict the future. And it's always super interesting and uh intellectually, you know, stimulating. But I do really want to talk about, you know, your experience at Gong. It's very unique to have such an incredible run that you have had at, at Gong. Uh, congrats, by the way, eight years. It's been cool to kind of have a front row seat with you, Udi, and and Amit, building this, this behemoth of a company, partnering together and then somewhat competing together. And now we're, now we're all play nicely in the sandbox again. What's been just like the most surprising part of growing Gong over the last eight years? I think from a company perspective, I think we were all surprised in the first few years how quickly you know companies adopted the technology and how quickly we saw that adoption curve accelerate. I think we're all excited to start building the company, but I think if we're honest, we all... We, we didn't think yeah, we would grow so quickly in such a new category that, you know, no one was there before. And um, Amita CEO keeps mentioning it to everyone that it wasn't a slam dunk to get Gong funded. It's like the first few rounds were, were not trivial, right? It wasn't like an idea that everyone said, like, this is going to be a gangbuster. We, sh- we have to invest, right? It, uh, we had a lot to prove to get to where we are. So that was one that was... Uh, super cool. The thing for me personally, I've never been at the company for so long. And in different stages throughout the company growth, I always ask myself, how do I keep growing myself? Right. And very different types of challenges when you're first couple of years in a early stage startup versus, you know, 1500 people, thousands of customers, like the level of scale I needed to learn a lot. And kind of my own learning about myself is like, how do I keep myself growing? How do I keep myself challenged? You know, how do I navigate where I want to go next? And where do I feel like I can add the most value to the company? I didn't have that experience previously. And I never knew if, again, if you had asked me eight years ago, would I, you know, feel that I'm contributing and I'm growing in a company that's gone to that size? I don't know what my answer would be. Probably, I would say probably not because I kind of considered myself a like early stage startup and I found like a huge amount of growth and fun and enjoyed every minute of the later growth stage as well. So a lot of learnings about myself as well during that journey. I can imagine. I can imagine. What was the, did you have any sort of like intentional practices around making sure you were still personally growing? Like, did you get it? growth from communities? Did you just sit down and reflect? Did you, you know, meditate every day? Like how how did you how did you keep going? <laughs> from a professional perspective, what I found that worked for me and I had these moments, I don't know, 
once or twice a year when I'm like, the challenge ahead is so big and I've never done that before. How do I get there? And the pattern that I found is also breaking the challenge to smaller pieces and then being very deliberate to going out there and just finding people that have done it in like amazing companies and just talk to anyone who would give me the time, whether it's just people in the network and just exchanging ideas, whether it's like, how do I hire the next amazing, you know, leader that would come and join my team and bring something that we don't have or, you know, build a new function or a new process that we don't have experience with. And a lot of them, this is how I hired the best leaders I brought in. I first like interviewed a lot of people just for me to learn. And during that time, I kind of identified and connected people that later was able to bring in and they completely changed how we work and allowed us to scale to the next level. So on the professional side, that was really a pattern that helped me. And I was like, don't be shy, talk to anyone, especially when Gong had a big brand. Sometimes people looked at me like, why are you asking me? Like, you should already know this, right? <laughs> but, you know, successful companies still, you have, you're all trying to figure it out. You don't have all the answers. So I think going up and learning is one. I think personally, there were definitely times that were more stressful. And then I, I like to be outdoors. I, so I would spend weekends trying to decompress by being outdoors or going out for, for a walk in the evening to kind of, you know, decompress. I did meditate in some cases in the mornings where I felt like this is something that helped me ground myself and start the day. So different methods and different times. But yeah, you definitely need to take care of yourself as well during that journey. It's not, it's not easy. Definitely not. Definitely not easy. Yeah. Gotta find ways to keep the tank full, whatever way it works, works for you. And yeah, I mean, just going, I always done that my, my whole career, whatever big daunting challenge that is in front of you. Like someone has, someone's done that. Actually, a lot of people probably have, have done some variation of that. There are maybe a few net new problems that are very hyper contextual to, to what you're experiencing, but usually someone will have a, a shared or lived experience. And I mean, that's part of the reason we, we do this podcast is to try and, you know, share some of those for, for people that might be going through a big challenge. And so that, I guess, naturally sort of leads us to the next point, which is kind of the, the story part of the, the podcast. And I know, you know, we were talking earlier and when you were, sort of younger in your leadership and your management of people, you were trying to recruit someone and it didn't really go as planned. Do you want to maybe fly back to that point in time and set the stage for yeah. kind of that, that time? Yeah. So this was many years ago, but still one of my personal, best personal learnings uh, that I had during my career. And the, the story is that I was trying to recruit someone to move from another group to my group, a really talented leader that I really wanted us to, to work together. And we've had a few conversations and I thought they were going really well, both personally and professionally. And then at the end of the day, he told me that he'd rather not join my team. And I asked him why. And he said, you know, personally, I, I find that our conversation had been great, but you have a reputation of being like super, super aggressive. And that's not my style. And I'm, I'm not sure that's good for me. And I was shocked. I, I had no idea that this was the reputation that I got. And even worse, I didn't actually see the signs that I am being too aggressive. And, you know, as a younger 
leader at the time. I was like super motivated trying to get things done. And I, I was completely oblivious to how, you know, this was projecting to my team and, and other people that I work with. Um, and I thought I had pretty good self-awareness, but that kind of uh, shattered it in a way. Um, and it was an amazing learning for me because I became much more deliberate in actually asking questions and trying to actually get honest feedback and, and do something about it. And I think one of the best things as a leader for you to be aware of that your self-awareness is not the entire picture. You have to go out there and you have to be very deliberate about getting feedback because you're always missing something. So to me, again, one of the, that was a huge blind spot to me and uh, hopefully it helped me do better later on in my career. Yeah, it's a big one and kind of actually a, a fairly common theme that we kind of hear on this podcast is either it was too aggressive in my own career or too aggressive in my leadership style. And sometimes it takes a while to, to figure that out. And it's kind of the old saying, you don't know what you don't know. And so you might be, you know, self-aware in what you know, but there's a whole other, you know, realm of things that you don't know. So from that learning, how have you sort of implemented it? Because it can be difficult. You know, you're an EVP. You've been at, you're like, you're this almost mythical figure at Gong. How do you find the ability to create space for honest feedback? Because it can be tough for someone to tell you, hey, Aran, you're, you're, you're being too aggressive. I know we've got these goals. I know we have to hit this crazy number, but the way you're going about it might be too aggressive. How, how do you open those doors? Because that's a, a tough needle to thread. Yeah. I think that's a, both personally and as companies grow, I think it's actually one of the challenges that as we grew as a company, we had to, to think of because you're right. When you're small, people kind of get to know you on a personal level, right? And, you know, if you, if you act the way that you want, you know, people to perceive you and experience you, then you're in pretty good shape. But when the company grows bigger and by definition, you don't, you don't have enough time to actually get to know everyone and not everyone gets to know you and the company has whatever, four, five, six layers. Sometimes between you and someone that you may want to talk to, it becomes really challenging. For me at the personal level, I, there's a few things that I'm trying to do. One is just have, you know, treat people as just people, right? When you talk to someone, when you're, it doesn't matter if it's a call that the business called together or just like whatever, you meet someone in, in the coffee in the office and try to make sure people don't feel there's some sort of a distance between you and that you talk about the stupid things that happened to you over the weekend like anyone else and just treat people as you would treat anyone else. I think when the company grows, you have to be more deliberate about creating a connection. So whether you have like random one-on-ones with people or you encourage people to, to connect more, you know, people reach out to me on Slack. Hey, can I get your help with this account? It's like, of course, that's amazing. Let's hop on a five minute call. Or I try to make this personal at the same time that I'm trying to help people during their work and create a personal connection. And the other thing, at least for me, at least when, especially when I had a much bigger team is, is create some structure around actually getting feedback, whether it's direct one-on-one from other people that I work with, or I even had a way that people could submit like anonymous thought feedback to me, because I acknowledge that even though I, I'm always open to talk to people, some people might find it intimidating, or it would take a pretty high bar of a problem or a challenge that they're facing for them to actually come to me. 
Mm-hmm. So sometimes maybe do that anonymously. So I think that's number two. And number three, when you build a big enough organization, it's not just about you, it's about the people you hire. And we invested a huge amount in Gone, making sure that we hire people that have the same, what we call operating principles that are not just something that we put on the wall, that people are, they do care about other people. They act the way that, that we expect them to act. And if you have that throughout the organization, people assume that whether it's me or a CEO, that we're not just playing a game, we're actually accessible. We want to listen. We want to learn. We're open for feedback. So it can't just remain at your level. It has to permeate across the entire organization from individual contributors to first-line managers to everyone in between to make sure that you're not creating those fake buffers. And um, the worst thing that could happen to a company is that you have sort of your whatever operating principles or whatever you call them, but it's just something that you put on the wall and no one, no one really expects them to be true. That creates a lot of challenges inside a company because you lose trust with everyone that you work with, that everything else that you're saying is not true as well. Yeah. If, if everyone is living by those principles, it almost becomes like self-policing because then if something is not abiding by those principles, it, it's, it's very apparent. You know, you can, you can see it right away yeah. versus if they're not, you're kind of all just, you know, running around in the, in the dark, trying, trying your best. But uh, that's all, all fantastic advice. And, and thank you for, for sharing that, that story. So, we do have a section where founders can submit questions. And you know, for listeners, if you're a founder or a revenue leader, you can submit questions at questions at gtmfund.com. I thought this one would be great for you because I feel like Gong hit this pretty early on. And the question is, when do you know when you have true product market fit? We call it raving fans. <laughs> this is like the the, the very visceral feeling that that uh, that we got there's a lot of metrics that that you can put in place but when you're starting to feel the pull from your customers that they want you to do more they want to introduce you to their network they want you to take more workflows or you know get you to do things outside of your current core i think this is kind of a magical moment that it's not just that you're driving value to them with exactly where you are today, but they're bought into where you're going and they want to be part of that journey. So in some ways, it's even deeper than product market fit. There are a lot of solutions out there that got to product market fit, but kind of stayed stagnant from that point on because there wasn't like a clear path for their customers to see that product fit into a much bigger part of their business than it currently does. So to me, this is like the real product market fit. It's not just where you are today. It's this is a wedge that could grow to something much bigger. And I think that's really what you're looking for in an early stage startup because mm-hmm. you're, you're only 1% of your vision is really out there. Mm-hmm. So to get that dynamic and that energy from your customers that they want to push you to move faster and do more, I think that this is really it. We felt it from the end users and our customers fairly early on, where frankly, we were concerned that people would not want to record any of their calls and how do we overcome those objections. And when we started seeing that the number one support ticket that we had was why was my call not recorded, 
then we knew we're onto something because people just wanted to get more and more value versus, you know, blocking us or containing us in just a simple or a narrow use case. So it might not be the official, you know, definition of product market fit, but to me, this is the magical moment that at an early stage that you're looking for. Yeah. I like that, that way of looking at it. And it's almost like, you know, you know, there's no better feeling in the world. I imagine when you had that like first raving fan and you're like, oh, oh shit, it, it's happening. And I, I remember going on LinkedIn back in like, I don't know, 20, 2018 and there'd be people posting about Gong. And I was like, wait, this is, they're talking about a software company. It, the way they were talking about it, and it was like unprompted. This was not like, you know, the case studies or anything. It was like they were talking about a new car they bought or so, or some sort of consumer product. And I think it was one of the first times I was like, wow, people can love software that much. It was, it was pretty cool even just to, to watch from the outside. So it must have been crazy internally. It, it was so much fun. Still is. We're still getting those like crazy, really raving fans that want us to do more. And can you take over this part of my business? And can you do this? And when would be able to do that? This is where you really know that you hit a a nerve Mm -hmm. that goes a long way, right? It's not just what you're doing now. This helps you create relationships with the market and with customers for years and years to come. Yeah. Yeah. And these raving fans, they become, they're almost like mini sellers for you now, right? They're, They're opening up all these introduction as for you. And then they also become like mini product managers because they're telling you all these features they want. So you have, all of a sudden just have this army that extends far beyond just, you know, your, your internal employees, which just has a compounding uh, effect over time, which is cool. All right. This has been awesome. As we sort of wrap up, I always ask the same two questions. And the first one is what is one thing that revenue leaders or founders believe to be true that you think is bullshit or outdated or no longer serving us? I still see a lot of revenue organizations where they don't actually try to get answers through data and or that we see the data, we do a lot of data work with our customers, but sometimes it doesn't fit their mental model of what the answer should be. And... A lot of people don't say that explicitly these day and age, because I think that's almost, you kind of, you're expected to say that you believe the data, but you can see how you're kind of, you have a thesis and you're trying to force the data to fit into that versus actually using data as a real decision-making mechanism. Um, And we see very clearly that, you know, companies that rely on the data to help them make decisions are performing better, they're more agile, they take action and they succeed. And there are definitely limits to data. You can't, you don't always have data about everything, but I still think the entire, you know, ecosystem around revenue is pretty mature in that area yet, right? There, there has to be a much deeper change. I think we're seeing that in marketing over the past 20 years, where marketing is very much a science. There's still a lot of creativity, et cetera, but the data leads the way in terms of like what works, what doesn't work, how do we test things, how do we go about our business? Um, this is a huge gap, I think, on the revenue side still. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, it feels like 
if we were all honest with ourselves, the last you know decade has just been collecting data and not using a lot of it. And you're totally right. You kind of you use that data when it's convenient for you to back into the answer that you want anyway. And hopefully this new era that we're going into, which kind of takes us full circle to what we were talking to at the beginning, is a lot of these new technological advancements are going to finally let us weaponize or take action on that that data. Because frankly, I, I just don't think that people had the the skill set, right? If you're a revenue leader, you're you're not a data scientist, you know, so you don't actually know how to correctly interact with large swaths of of data. And and now we should be able to, which is certainly exciting. Yeah, a hundred percent. Data it's hard, and I think AI could and should help us use data in in ways that we couldn't have done before, unless you had a huge team of data scientists, which most companies don't have. So I think this is going to be a real breakthrough and hopefully we'll be able to, with everything that we talked about, adoption of data and kind of using AI to recommend what you should be doing and distill the insights. That would be the next revolution, I think, in revenue. Mm -hmm. Totally. Well, it's going to be a fun 2024 to see this all play out. Final question before I let you go is a lot of people are, are struggling right now. It's a hard time to grow. You know, budgets are, are still kind of constricting. Headcounts are, are still lowering. It's just a tough time for a lot of folks. And so what's one go-to-market tactic or strategy that's been working for Gong recently? I think for us, for sure, one of the main things that we're leveraging and resonates really well in the market is, you know, the consolidated platform that we provide. So the messaging around it where, you know, you can leverage a single platform that relies on what's truly happening in your interactions with your customers to drive anywhere from prospecting to forecasting to coaching and bettering your team. That resonates across the board and kind of goes back to our conversation where a few years ago you can buy multiple tools and none of them were really adopted all the way, but you could kind of live with that. I think today you have to be much more deliberate around how you think about value, how you think about cost, and how you help customers being getting better ROI for their investment. So that's been working really well for us in this day and age. And I think it's not going in, not going away anytime soon. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, lean heavily into that. If you're fortunate enough to be listening to this and you you have a platform and not a like more of a point solution. You know, don't hesitate to fully embrace that, you know, consolidation messaging. It, it's super, super, super powerful right now because pretty much every leader I know is, is trying to cut tech spend and simplify their tool stack. So if you can tell them exactly what they're looking for, that's, that's going to be helpful. Well, Iran, thank you so much for, for taking the time. I know you're, you're a busy man. So really, really appreciate it. This has been a, a fun conversation and I think this will probably come out in the, the New Year's, but we're recording this just before the holidays. So I hope you have a wonderful holidays with your friends and family. Thank you, Scott. It's been a pleasure and happy holidays to you and the GTM fun team. Thank you, my friend. I'll go give your son a hug for you. And for all the <laughs> listeners, thank you all for, for joining us. I always say it, but listing's one thing. Executing is completely different. You know, take some things we talked about, contextualize it for your, your business, put it into action, and we will see you all next week. 